Welcome. I'm Scott Cannon, and you're on Deep Background, the Kansas City Star's newsroom podcast. Today I'm joined by Judy Thomas. Hey, Judy. Hi, Scott. We're going to talk about um, sort of a, an, an other a parallel world of political, religious, um, maybe even uh, racial philosophy, militia movement, sovereign citizens, clan, that sort of world. Judy, you have become quite an expert. You're well-sourced across the country in people who travel in these circles. How did that come to be? Where did you first sort of make contact with this world? Well, it actually is going to date me here because it goes back to 1994 um, when I was uh, actually working at the Wichita Eagle newspaper in Wichita, Kansas, and I started hearing about gun shows. That's kind of what got me started on this. Um, it, it, it actually came from covering a, a different beat. I was covering the abortion issue. And some of my sources in that uh, movement were also um, starting to ta- not take up arms, but become more interested in the Second Amendment issues. And I started hearing about gun shows around the country and how popular they were. So I just started going to some down in Wichita. And in late 1994, I started hearing about something called the militia movement. And that's pretty much what got me started. And then you kind of know the rest of the story. Just uh, in a few months later, in April of 95, uh, was the Oklahoma City bombing. And that's when militias really started coming on the scene. Right. I think what a lot of people maybe don't realize is that, and of course, gun shows are mostly, mostly about guns and law-abiding folks with fairly traditional views of the world. Mm-hmm. But particularly in the 90s and maybe before then, they were one of these rare places where people who had particularly anti-government views Mm-hmm. could begin to circulate literature um, and sort of talk amongst fellow travelers about their suspicions about the government, particularly because it, it related to the Second Amendment, right? Correct, yes. And one of the things that had happened in 93 uh, was the Waco debacle, um, the, the fire at the Branch Davidian compound. And that was uh, that had really started, and, and the year before that was the Randy Weaver I- incident, um, out in uh, in uh, Ruby Ridge, Idaho. So you had those two issues um, that were kind of, uh, I guess, boiling up and everything. And then um, after Waco, people really started talking about uh, the government being out of control. So the gun show circuit was a great way for those people, like you said, to recruit, to get organized. They were, you know, take, writing literature up and, and passing it out at the shows. And that's one of the things Timothy McVeigh did also. And so it, it, it's interesting because one of the, there's a funny story behind, not funny, but an interesting story behind this. They, McVeigh and Nichols had been doing the gun show circuit and, uh, and selling items and everything. And uh, they were actually at o- Overland Park. I think it was called the Merchandise Mart back then, the convention center there in Overland Park, uh, selling or some of their items just uh, not too long before the bombing. I think a month or two before. And they were selling literature bombing. or they mm-hmm. were selling, okay. Yeah, they sold some li- they, literature and, uh, you know, knives and things like that. Um, I missed that show. I, I got sick and had mono and was out, and I sent my husband to that one. Of course, he didn't know they were there, but I, it was just really interesting that how that all came about. So they were actually very close uh, to the... Now, would they city. have been selling the, the Turner Diaries, do you think, Timothy McVeigh... I'm pretty sure, yeah, yeah, because he, the, the feds, the prosecutor said at, um, at the bombing trial that he used the Turner Diaries as a blueprint, <clears throat> excuse me, for the Oklahoma City bombing. The Turner Diaries was a book that was written um, about 
uh, the overthrow, uh, a white supremacist group uh, movement that was uh, overthrowing the government. And yeah, they said uh, Timothy McVeigh used, used that. A really awful lot novel liter- in a literature sense, but yeah, so also a, some, some, some pretty ugly rhetoric. And, it, and yeah. the idea was that, you know, very much borrowed that, that, that if, if you did the right action against the government, that you would spark a, a sort of race war. Correct. Mm-hmm. And it was a very racist book, racist written book, yes. Yeah. By William Pierce. Yeah. yeah you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, you you seized on this at an early date and recognized sort of the the, the, the forces that were coming together. I, I this is why you're a much better reporter than I am. I remember going <laughs> to a a Klan rally in uh, Greene County outside of Springfield, Missouri, in the early '90s, and it was like all Klan rallies. It was six guys on stage, three guys watching them, and, you know, multiples of that protesting. And I remember watching two young guys, and they were holding up plywood shields that had some sort of a Klan mark in them. It's a miserable, hot day out, and they were just dying. I was thinking, well, if these guys are here, who's pumping gas? And I thought, well, the lesson that I took away from that, which was the wrong lesson, was that these are people that not to be worried about. But, you know, they did, you know, it, it only takes a couple like McVeigh and right. Nichols. And what you have now is a different environment with the Internet where people who have, you know, an interest in something obscure or a belief system that's well out of the norm and that doesn't go over well in polite society – there's a huge number of people that can validate that for you, right? Oh, exactly. And, and that's what uh, we're finding more and more of is the, the, what they call the lone wolves or in, in McVeigh and Nichols' case and, and you know, Michael Fortier to some extent who assisted or knew about it, the plot. But we're finding more of these smaller cells or smaller groups, and they call it leaderless resistance. That, co- that term was coined quite a few years ago, but uh, where nobody else really knows about it. Um, and they keep it among themselves, and it makes them harder to track. But, yeah, the Internet has, has helped. I mean, you can have a guy in, in his basement um, just seeing all of these other people out there that actually believe the way he does. And sometimes some of those people end up, not always, but they end up acting. You know, they, they, they start radicalizing because of those views that are out there. And it's so much easier now. You know, back in, in, in the 90s, we didn't have that. Um, McVeigh and Nichols actually, like we said, we're going to the gun show circuits, but now you can just do it, get online, and it's amazing all of the different websites out there. Um, there's there's various ones. There's neo-Nazi ones. There, there's um, racist ones, and well, and people can get on there and and post all kinds of things, and it's it's just incredible the thousands of people that you'll see posting on some of those today. Right, and a lot of them have take their their teachings from some bit of scripture and, and, and run mm-hmm. with it in a certain direction, mm-hmm. or they take it from their legal interpretation of something, which right. is sort of what the militias are about. So why don't you explain to somebody who, you know, most of us think of militia as a bunch of guys getting together with guns and playing in the woods. And, but they, there's a, they come to this militia idea, not com- entirely out of the blue. So walk me through w- w- how they would describe the purpose of these things? Well, the, when they first started forming, or when we first started hearing about them in, in the early 90s, 
they they actually were they started getting organized into actual groups and they had numbers and and regiments and things like that. Guys would um, take on rank. And- oh, absolutely. They would. Yeah, they would. They would be called colonel and and things like that. Um, one of the some of the more common ones back in in the time of the Oklahoma City bombing were the, the Michigan militia, and everybody probably remembers if they were around back then. Mark from Michigan, Mark Cornkey was one of the more colorful figures. I think he had a radio show. He that, did, uh-huh. right? Yes, he did. And and they and, and then you had John Trockman, who was with the militia of Montana. That was another pretty well known one. And Norm Olson was also with uh, the Michigan militia. And after the bombing, uh, th- these groups had started. Actually, some of them held monthly training, and they would go out in the woods and, and shoot guns and camp yeah, but out. And how things would like they that. describe themselves? What's our reason for being? What What's the purpose of them? They were preparing. They, they believed that the government that was in existence at the time and still is today um, doesn't follow the isn't the constitutional form of government that the Constitution intended, and so they see those in control as being anti-government. And then there was the whole issue with uh, President Bush making, uh, Bush Sr., commenting about the New World Order. And that threw everybody up in arms because they thought we were going to have a one-world government and they were going to be forced to, they they thought there would be foreign troops coming in and taking over the country. And that they would lock up everybody that had, or take everyone's guns. And it was, so that was kind of how this all formed. And then you started seeing, you know, a lot of conspiracy theories developing out of this. They, they thought that there were concentration camps being set up in various parts of the country to, to, to put all the people that went against the government. And so they, so they did. They held training, and they were preparing for war against their own government if they needed to, if that needed to happen. And so how does this become inflected with race? Well, because back in the... Um, I guess it started... A, a lot of this has its roots in what's called Christian identity, um, that was back in the, that goes clear back into the eight to the 80s when you had the Posse Comitatus. That was one of the earlier groups, and that kind of morphed into the group called the Freemen. But they believed that well, they needed a boogeyman. And back in during the time of the farm crisis in the 80s, a lot of farmers were going broke. They were losing their land. They, they blamed the government, and then that and somehow, bankers who they assume all are they Jewish, Jewish, right? Bankers, yes. And so there was the enemy. And these groups started forming at that time, and they hated the government then because, you know, some of them were losing their land. And then you had, the, in the 90s, they kind of turned into the, the Freemen. You probably remember the standoff in Montana, Jordan, Montana. And these guys were actually... So again, walk us through the stand. What, what makes someone a Freeman? Am I a Freeman? Okay. Well, I guess we... What, they call themselves Freemen of the land or Freeman because they believe that um, the government has no authority over them. And, and there, there's all kinds of different theories, but, but a lot of them believe that the, this goes back to, they say that one of the theories is that the, the U.S. took away all of their rights um, back when, let's see, in the 1930s when we went off the gold standard and that they sold, they say that birth certificates really aren't legit. That is the government selling us babies as collateral when you're born to foreign governments and that you're actually val- worth something and that you, I mean, that it, it's, it's really kind of hard to explain, but those are some of the theories that were going around. So they believed that um, some of the ones that are doing these scams that you hear about today, um, they, they say that the government actually owes you, every, every one of us, um, that they owe us for, for using us as collateral. And so they say that they don't, the government has no authority over them. And you'll see, and, and I guess now it's now... reparations of a sort? Yes, yes, exactly. And, and now they call themselves sovereign citizens, and I'm sure you've, a lot of people have heard that. 
that's that's the more um, I guess a recent term. It's been around for a little while, but those would be similar to the Freeman, you know, back 20 years ago. These sovereign citizens we're hearing about today, um, there's there's different kinds actually, and and they're not just, but they did have their roots in the ra the racist roots. But now you're not seeing as much of of the racist part of it as you are just some of them are just scam artists. Um, but you're also seeing all different creeds and colors. I mean, we're seeing there's a group of black sovereign citizens now who call themselves Moorish sovereigns, and we've been seeing some of those uh, uh, pop up as well. There was the, the shooting in Baton Rouge um, last year that involved a man from Kansas City who went out there and shot uh, police officers. Um, he had, some, had filed some sovereign citizen documents saying that he was not part of this, the, the government. So it's, right. it's, all, it's all across the board now. And the know? dogma is not consistent here, really. I mean, it's, it, it's hard, it'd be hard to find even a you know, a hundred people in the country that agree to this, the same interpretation of what rules a sovereign citizen or a freeman or a moor. Am I right about that? Yeah, it, it, it really has cha changed quite a bit in recent years. And we're seeing, um, in talking to some of the experts that have been monitoring them, uh, like I said, some of them don't even realize that, that the, they were, their origins were more race-based. Race -based. Uh, so now it's more into they're, they hate the government. They think the government's out of control. Um, and when you saw, well, a, a lot of them were involved in the, uh, you know, the, the standoff with the, uh, Bundy, at the Bundy Ranch. Some of those were sovereign citizens. Uh, when the government was trying to take, well, they saw it as the government was taking away the Bundy's cattle. The Bundy's right, had, people don't recall. I, I forget where mm -hmm. it was exactly in the yeah, southwest, but the yeah, Bundy's had been ranching on right. government land yes. leased for, for yeah for years, for years, generations and, probably. And the the government said that they owed them for uh, having their cattle out there. It was over a million dollars, and so there was this, they came to take the cattle away uh, because they weren't paying their their dues. And then there was a big standoff that ensued that lasted for a long time. Um, finally, the government and then they took over the refuge mm -hmm. a year later. Yeah, was it? actually, um, in January of 2016. Um, was that Nevada? Yeah, the, that that one was. Yeah, the, the Bundy one was in Nevada, and then in January of 2016, we had the Oregon standoff. Thank you. Yeah. And that was um, a, a couple of the Bundy sons uh, went out uh, and they went to Oregon, and they they it was a similar kind of deal. They took over a wildlife refuge there. Um, because they said the government was uh, should be giving back that land, and they were doing it because some, uh, some father and son had been arrested and put into prison for for uh, getting it or taking over some land there, or for setting fire to some federal land that they said was theirs. And so that turned into a long standoff, and and one person was ended up being killed in that uh, that standoff because he ran a roadblock, and so. But those, there were some sovereign citizen connections to that as well. So the right, the, and you yeah. also talked to the uh, the family, the girl who went out there with the singing family. Correct. Yes. Um, and 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 it's interesting because their connection is, they, they were in central Kansas somewhere. Is yes, that right? they were. Uh -huh. they their were connection was sort of a, a born through their Christianity, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. This was the 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 woman's name was Odalis Sharp. And uh, she had uh, 10 children. She was divorced uh, from her husband, and he was living out in Colorado. But she was raising the kids on her own in Auburn, Kansas, which is near Topeka. And she had, um, yeah, she homeschooled the children, and she had gotten um, in involved in, um, in uh, she's a very religious woman. And somehow she had found out uh, a couple years ago about the standoff, the Bundy standoff in Nevada, 
and decided she was going to go out there. So she loaded up her kids and went out there. And she had a, the, the family was called the Sharp Family Singers. The kids were very talented, very good singers. And she took them all out there in a van and they sang out at the standoff around all these armed protesters. And she uh, took some heat for that, obviously. But then when the uh, standoff happened in Oregon in uh, last year, she did the same thing, loaded up, uh, this time it wasn't all of them because a couple of them had grown and moved out, but she loaded them up, uh, went out there and she sang, they led her onto the property where they were having their arms standoff and they sang and performed for some of the, the protesters there as well. But one of the girls, um, uh, 18 year old girl, was actually riding in a car when Lavoie Finnicum, he's the one that was shot and killed for running the roadblock, she was in the vehicle, a pickup with him when that happened. And uh, so she kind of became, uh, after that incident, she spoke out about the government and said that they had murdered Lavoie in cold blood. He had gotten out of the pickup, uh, ran the roadblock, went off in the snow and got out, and he was shot to death. Because um, he was reaching for his waistband the, and a the gun. Videos and the, the videos that he was definitive. Right, yeah. The video uh, that was taken showed that he was reaching... And there's controversy, obviously, over uh, some some of his supporters. Or many, his supporters all said that he was shot in cold blood, that he wasn't reaching for his gun. And um, so that whole controversy ensued. But um, Victoria Sharp, the 18-year-old, became the darling then of the militia movement, the patriot movement, um, after that incident because she went started speaking out about it. Right. And, so, uh, and then the mother actually ended up after that incident, l losing custody of the children, the, the father now has custody of the minors, um, not only not because of really that incident, but it brought to light some of the other issues in the home, and the children ran away um, a few months later and, or, and notified authorities and said that she was abusing them. And so she... And that itself becomes a cause celebrity. Exactly, exactly. And so now she has lost custody of those children. You know, what's interesting to me about the, the sovereign citizens, and, I, you know, as you're, you're right, it's a gray line from there to the freemen, et cetera. But so often the claims that are made, they, they tend out to be conveniently self-serving. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that I am owed money by the government mm -hmm. or uh, that, 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 that somehow I get, I don't have to pay taxes, um, and there was a trend. Uh, uh, I, I went to a conference of county official, national conference of county officials, maybe 15 years ago. And the big thing then was that folks like militias or sovereign citizens would file lien on people. So, mm -hmm. say they're upset with Scott Cannon because he does a podcast, and they would say, I, you know, had, had done harm to them. I owe them a million dollars. They'd go to the county recorder's office mm -hmm. and file a lien on my home for that amount. And, right. they, and these county officials were like, we don't know quite what to do with these liens. <laughs> and they were basically most – and the default position was, all right, we'll go ahead and record the lien. Anybody can file, yeah. Right, which is troublesome file. because if I do go to sell my house, okay, I can probably fairly quickly, you know, show that this is a, a bogus lien, but it – it might be just enough to slow me down and, and scuttle the sale of my house. Mm -hmm. It became a particular problem not for little reporters but for the county sheriff exactly. or uh, uh, yeah. people in political office. Right. Is that still a tactic? That yeah, they're... it is, actually. And have you checked lately? You may have one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't checked, actually, but you may have one filed against you for all we know. My house um, isn't worth much anyway. <laughs> well, yes, uh, they, and they are still doing that. 
they they file yeah, uh, what people call fraudulent or, or bogus liens. But if yeah, if they don't like something you did, or or uh, a lot of them they file them against judges uh, and sheriffs and things like people like that. Um, anybody that's got a government position. Um, and some state, states actually have passed laws now making it illegal to do that. Um, I'm surprised there aren't more that have. But I, I have Google alerts for sovereign citizens and every single day, I, not a day uh, goes by that I don't get something on a sovereign citizen somewhere in the country who has been charged with filing these liens. Or, mm. And, and uh, there was a group just a couple of weeks ago, um, I can't remember if it was Tennessee or uh, a southern state, and they uh, they had filed $350 million worth of bogus liens, and there were like a dozen of them who were just charged in that kind of a, a scam. But the problem with those is... Bogus, says the mainstream reporter, well, here, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because they say they're legitimate, obviously, and we've got several that have come up through the courts here. There was one last year, a man was, was actually convicted of doing that in federal court. But the problem that, that prosecutors say happens is it clogs the court system up because you've got all of these and they file them and it takes time to do that. And then people, get, it's hard to get them off. It's hard to get them off your record. And then you have to, it gets expensive. People have to hire lawyers to do that. So um, it, it is a problem. And, and like I said, it does clutter, clutter up the system. Yeah. So help put this amorphous, you know, crazy right, far right, um, patriot movement in the context of our politics of the day. So you've got Steve Bannon as one of the right-hand man to Trump, appears to have s- survived the latest palace intrigue. Um, I think he coined the term alt-right, and some people want to, you know, take say alt-right is, is just a step away from this. Is, should, should, would I look at these in the same context, or are we comparing apples and giraffes? Well, the, the alt-right is a, a, a fairly recent term. It, I, I think people are saying, um, actually, uh, Steve Bannon gave a, a platform to the alt-right through Breitbart News, which he was chairman of. Um, and it was, uh, the talk is that it was, the term was actually coined by uh, uh, Richard Spencer. Uh, you're yeah, right. back in, uh, I think he had, he had a website. Uh, it was called thealternativeright.com uh, back in 2010. And that's when it started becoming more popular. And we um, should, yeah. if I'm, I'm right, I should understand Spencer mm-hmm. as more um, trans, outspokenly Absolutely, yes. na- white nationalist, mm-hmm. right? Yes, yes, he is. And, the, and yeah, it's, the, it's not quite as fair to look at Bannon in, in that well, full e- on. And even uh, like my sources in the Anti-Defamation League and some of these other groups, they don't even call Bannon a white supremacist. Uh, but they do, they do say that he has... Given and he's even said this himself as chairman of Breitbart News, he gave them a platform. He said, "I gave a platform to the alt right," and that's been the concern that now he's uh, the chief strategist for Trump, even though he seems to have maybe been demoted recently by being removed from the National Security Council. Um, they say that being in that position in the White House basically gives white supremacists or white nationalists a, a pipeline to the White House, and that has been the main concern. Well, and one thing you might do is, is normalize a little bit of this, exactly. this talk. It, yeah. it used to be, like I said earlier, you wouldn't mm-hmm. say this sort of thing in polite company. No. Maybe no. that's changed a little bit with his presence there. Yeah, yeah, and that's what people say. It, it, it has emboldened a lot of these people. And, and I will say, just in the last few years, on talk radio and talk shows and everything, I'm hearing people using these, talking this way, more than, than you used to. Um, it, 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 uh, and, and the alt-right... You know, some people say that 
that that's just a euphemism for you know the newest form of white supremacy. And some people, the press had been criticized for even using their phrase because they say that's what they want to be called. But you know, they're they say that you know they reject mainstream conservatism. They think that the mainstream, the old time conservatives uh, in politics are impotent and too weak, you know, and, and the alt-right... And they they, they wants, might feel as removed from uh, Paul Ryan as they do from Nancy Pelosi. Right, right, yeah. Because they don't, yeah, they think that the these conservatives aren't, aren't you know, they, the alt-right people say that they want their own, it's, it's a form of nationalism, but they want to live se- separately. They want... They want different races to live separately, and and they say the rest of the conservatives aren't aren't looking at that or yeah. aren't supporting that. And do we know? Maybe the numbers aren't large enough, but do we can we begin to make assumptions about who these folks are? Because the you know the the stereotype is the thirty year old white guy who mm-hmm. can't hold a job, but and he's not, frustrated at yeah. the world. And you're telling yeah. me it's, it's something else. Well, that used to be the yeah that that. That was used to be the case more, and, and and even looking at the militias of old too, you you know you, people would would kind of character characterize them as, you know, Bubba in overalls, foaming at the mouth type guy. Uh, the the alt right now they they are more sophisticated. You've got a couple of different branches of the alt right, I guess you could call it. Um, you've got the the intellectual part of it. You've got intellectuals, college educated people. Um, there's a guy named Jared Taylor with the group called American Renaissance who's, who's part of that movement. They have conferences and they get speakers to come in and, and they promote that kind of, you know, that, the intellectual side. And then you've got the younger, um, more social media type people that we were talking about earlier that, you know, they're, they've got a connection through the internet and they're more media, uh, social media savvy, but they're also um, out there and they're more they're more vocally racist, I guess, than the, the intellectuals are too, but they're not quite as in your face. But the, the but you've got this other group that's going out on college campuses now, and they're trying to recruit young people, and we're seeing a lot more young people that are now getting involved. And and the the uh, phrase alt-right kind of became um, more known here in Kansas last year, when last fall, um, at Bethany College down in Lindsburg, Kansas. There's a small college there, and the... the um, college president had posted on Facebook uh, about an incident that had occurred. There was um, someone had put racist graffiti on the sidewalks, and um, that's when this all first came about, and it said, uh, make Lindsberg white again. Um, Bethany is, a, is called Little Sweden, or Bethany College is in Lindsberg, and it's called Little Sweden because there's so many Swedes there. And so it turns out the kid that had done it, was an, it's a 19-year-old kid that was part of this alt-right group called Identity Europa. And he had was upset at the president because he had adopted um, some racially mixed children and some other things that, among other things, he didn't like what the uh, the college was becoming more diverse. So that uh, kind of brought the spotlight to to how they're trying to recruit on college campuses. Right. I want to work back to Trump, but let's go at it uh, real quickly his- historically. This to me, there's there's an issue of. The, a boogeyman in the White House might matter. So mm-hmm. during the Clinton years, you're right, you had um, Ruby Ridge, you had Waco, um, and then you had Oklahoma City. And, and part of that was a pushback to Clinton as a Democrat seen, seen as mm-hmm. less um, um, warm to the Second Amendment and gun rights. Right. Um, and it, 
when George W. Bush was in office, it felt to me, and I could be wrong about this, that there was a bit of a downtick and only a mild uptick yeah. with Obama, really. It was the, sort of the Bundys. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, do you see, am I, am I right about it, those administrations? And does the boogeyman in the White House matter, or is the boogeyman bigger than that? It's, it's everybody. Uh, yeah, you're right. And when Obama was elected, at the beginning, right, right shortly after he was elected, there was a, kind of a, a, a surge of, of some of these violent incidents uh, but then it's kind of stagnated towards the end, and you know all the presidents uh, have been kind of a boogeyman if they if they supported gun control and things like that. So there was always that with the Obama administration. Uh, with the Trump administration, you know, having like we were like saying, the first having, president I think maybe if ever, if, or at least for generations, to go and talk to the NRA, uh-huh, very, very yeah. vocal. Yeah. And- I, I think what as far as having a boogeyman in there uh, right now. Uh, I think it remains to be seen if you know people that we were saying that the um, the right wing extremists and the alt right was emboldened by having Bannon in there, but Bannon really hasn't yet. They don't see him as as maybe doing anything for them yet, or maybe they. I don't. I guess it kind of remains to be seen what happens, whether Trump does some things for him for them because they were excited about immigration, they were excited about the wall going up and none of that has happened yet and the well there's the health care reform issue I'm not sure if they're that into that issue but they definitely are on immigration and building a wall and if he doesn't get those things done I don't know what I don't know if they'll start maybe we'll start seeing violence coming out of this wing or, or uh, when people trying to take the you know this into their own hands I don't know yet so you almost wonder if having a, a, a Jewish daughter if that's going to matter at some point, you know, yeah. things things go bad otherwise, and then the, you know the conspiracies can come from any direction. We, exactly. We yeah, it's it's a complicated. Uh, the Trump family is kind of complicated when you're trying to sort these out. Right. Um, it, and 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 how has you, you say the internet has mattered to some degree? Do you see it as a dramatic shift here in terms of rallying numbers or organizing numbers? Is it, is it primarily giving that sort of lone wolf the same way? Um, you know, ISIS has been able to to get people to work on their own. I I think for in recent years it's been huge as far as getting people organized. Uh, but I don't know. Some people are are telling me that the alt right basically was just pretty much living on the internet, and now it, it'll be interesting to see if they can you know get out there and and get things accomplished outside of the web. So I I, I don't know. I guess that I, I still see uh, the these groups like Stormfront, which is the the most popular, you know, uh, white supremacist, white nationalist uh, forum, is still is still going strong, um, and there's still a lot of people on there. But whether that you know ends up doing anything as far as politically, I don't know. All right, let's walk out on one topic: your your relationship with these folks. I mean, they call you, they email you, <laughs> probably to sometimes to the degree that you'd rather they they stay away. But the, how, you know, and Dennis Mahon, the, the Klan guy, he, he would call you regularly from prison, yes, right? Yes, still does, yeah, yeah. And why, why, were they, why do they want to talk to this woman reporter for a corporate-owned media? What's their motivation? Why are they willing to do that? I think a, a, lot, of it is, a lot of it is arrogance. Um, a lot of it is I think they, they want to get their message out there. And, and it is kind of a fine line that, that we walk here. Because I have stayed in touch with these, I have some of these sources from 20 years ago, 
Um, and Dennis Mahon is one of them. He was uh, he lived here in Kansas City. <clears throat> oh, was it in the in the 80s and maybe early 90s too? He was with the the KKK, White Knights of the KKK, and and he was one of the leaders here. And then he ended up moving down to Oklahoma. And he actually was considered uh, was looked at, investigated as part of the Oklahoma City bombing conspiracy at one point, because he had lived at this place called Elohim City, which is a white, uh, well, they don't call themselves white supremacists, but they're a Christian identity compound in Oklahoma where, you know, there were a lot of people going in. They seem, seem to call it an underground railroad for white supremacists, but it was investigated and it was cleared as being part of the bombing. So it was conspiracy. sort of a way station for It was, yeah, and it's still sort. there, and, and we actually went back and visited it um, two years ago on the 20th anniversary of the bombing. They're still there, um, but... but uh, yeah, I, so so Dennis Mahon, uh, I called him up. I had been in touch over the years, but he was uh, charged uh, several years ago with mailing or sending a mail bomb to a diversity office in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and he was convicted and he got a 40-year prison sentence. Well, of course, he says he's innocent, and you know he's still trying. He's going through the appeals process, but he's lost at every turn. But um, I, I contacted him a couple of years ago when I was working on a story about the bombing anniversary and, and where we are with domestic terrorism in the country. And he wrote back to me. Well, then he started calling, and he's, been, he's in, still in federal prison. But he said that the, one of the reasons he talks to me is he, he said because I, he, he said, I've, you've been hard on me, but you've always been fair. So, I mean, I, maybe that's why some and of them do that. And there are other people that reach out to you. Essentially, yeah. it's they, you're an avenue to a larger audience. Yes, but, but like I, I started to say and forgot to finish this part, uh, when Glenn Miller, uh, Fraser Glenn Miller, uh, in, in 2014, went on his shooting rampage and killed two people at the Jewish Community Center and then another woman down the street at, a, at Village Shalom, a Jewish retirement center, um, because he thought they were Jewish and they actually all were Christian. Uh, after that shooting rampage, uh, I, I wrote to him in prison and then, um, and, and so did people all over, the reporters all over the country did, and he didn't, wasn't gonna talk, but then I contacted um, one of his friends from a, a a uh, white nationalist group who I knew that had been in contact with him and then he got t told Glenn or got convinced him to talk to me and we did get criticized we we wrote a story I did quite a few interviews with him over the phone and he explained why he did what he did and how he did it and everything um, and the reason we ran this story was because um, the root of which is racist anger and all oh, I mean, that's the answer to oh, those yeah. questions yeah um, and and that was why he did it you know he 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 wanted to kill Jews. I mean, that, that, was, that was his whole point. Uh, but he also talked about how he had staked out the center and you know, some of the things he did building up to that. He, he conned a guy to, into buying a gun for him, or actually getting, he got three guns that he had with him that day. That, and he was a convicted felon, so wasn't supposed to have them in the first place. But we did the story because uh, people said, how do we ever understand these, you know, why these people do what they do? And maybe you never will, but we, in order to try to understand, we need to talk to these people, and we need to, uh, in order to prevent these from happening again, uh, to, to show people how this happened. Right, and that's yeah. the work you've been doing for years and in a way that quite nobody else has. <laughs> Listen, Judy, thank you for joining us today. Folks out there, listen, hope you enjoyed it. Um, review us, uh, share us with your friends. You have been on Deep Background. <laughs>